COVID-19 cases in Tuvalu continue to rise in the country's first community outbreak. And later on... I never believe that Samoa go to the, the win the semi-final. Samoan fans celebrate Rugby League World Cup final debut despite loss to Australia. The United Nations Climate Summit has ended with an agreed reduction in coal emissions but no change to oil and gas targets. However, a historic breakthrough has been made in one area, with nearly 200 countries agreeing on a hard-fought deal to create a loss and damage fund. The fund could see the richest and worst carbon-polluting countries contributing to the cost of the climate loss and damage that developing nations have incurred. Tuvalu Minister for Finance and Pacific Climate Champion on Loss and Damage, Seviet Painu, sent this message wrapping up his view of what COP27 has achieved. It has been greatly satisfying uh, at this COP to secure agreement for establishing a fund for loss and damage. This is a major landmark achievement, not only for, for COP, but more so for the Pacific island nations and the sits across the globe because we have been calling for this fund for this past three decades so it has been long time coming and finally this COP has delivered what we have been calling for many many years so this is a major, major breakthrough and a victory for the Pacific Island countries. What uh, remains now over the course of the next 12 months is a process for setting up the fund. And all the Pacific countries should be involved in one way or another to ensure that the fund works to meet our need in the Pacific. The other issue that uh, the Pacific countries have been fighting for in this COP is to accelerate action on mitigation and ambition in order to keep the 1.5 target alive. Regrettably, at this COP, there had been a contentious issue among some of the negotiating groups. And therefore, it is quite unfortunate that in the final outcomes document, the mitigation action has been severely compromised. What we have been calling for 
has not been picked up in the cover decision text. And we have been calling for the phasing out of all fossil fuels. We have been calling for the peaking of emissions before 2025. We have been calling for quantifiable and measurable methane emissions reduction targets. And none of this went into, made it into the final text. And that is our only regret that the success we made in the loss and damage discussion did not extend to the mitigation commitments. However, there have been a number of an overwhelming majority of parties to the conference that have been calling and supporting ambitious mitigation and uh, uh, actions to in order to keep the 1.5 target alive. So there is hope that going into COP28 in Dubai next year, that we should be able to achieve that objective. So between now and over the next 12 months, we need to work closely with our allies, especially uh, in the those from the global north, to ensure that we achieve our objective for COP28. COVID-19 cases in Tuvalu continue to rise in the country's first community outbreak. There have been 2,364 cases in total, 356 of which have been reported in the latest reporting period on Sunday evening local time. The Ministry of Health Permanent Secretary Lili Tangisia Farabai spoke with Lydia Lewis following the arrival of a team of healthcare workers from Fiji and a representative from the World Health Organization. We still have an increasing number of positive tested cases here on Capitol and on some of the central islands, some of the islands, especially the central free islands. So, yes, we have an increase of uh, number, but uh, the older mild cases so far, we are grateful that uh, we can uh, experience uh, any uh, severe cases uh, so far. It's mostly uh, mild cases, uh, even those that uh, have been reported from uh, the three islands that have uh, COVID. Have any people with pre-existing health conditions that have contracted COVID-19 passed away? No. As of as we speak now, we haven't... Uh, uh, got in, uh, got onto that uh, situation. We haven't got in, uh, uh, people, uh, you know, passed away because uh, of COVID-19. No, we don't have. We have a few hospitalized cases, but uh, none has passed away. How many people have been hospitalized in total and how many people are currently in hospital? We've had about uh, 11 hospitalized cases and... Uh, Five out of 11 have uh, been discharged. 
what symptoms are they showing and how serious are they? They're mostly uh, moderate cases. Most uh, common uh, symptoms, coughing and uh, nose, uh, running noses and uh, only very few cases of those that uh, have uh, other conditions that have uh, got onto that uh, state of, uh, you know, some difficulty in uh, briefing. Some of those few uh, moderate cases that we have uh, kept here in hospital. How many people have difficulty breathing and are they needing support from machines to help them breathe? Yes, we've got about two uh, cases of three that uh, have been stabilised uh, using the uh, support of machines. Are there any concerns at the moment around the infrastructure? Does the hospital have enough workers and enough equipment to cope? I think at the, at the moment, uh, uh, yeah, we acknowledge that uh, transmission is, uh, in, is uh, increasing, but the uh, uh, hospitalised uh, cases is, uh, is less. Our main concern uh, now is the uh, shortage of our key uh, of uh, Healthcare professionals, uh, nurses, and doctors. So we did uh, sort it. And uh, at the moment, we have pulled uh, some of our nurse professionals who are working in other sectors. So during the first week of the Arctic, we requested that they all uh, come and assist our nursing workforce. And to speak now, we also have uh, the Fiji Medical uh, Emergency Medical Assistance Team. They were run. Right here on uh, Saturday, uh, they sponsored WHO, so we've got uh, a few professionals from uh, WHO as well. So they are all uh, here since Saturday, in, uh, alongside our, our technical teams here from Afuti. How many doctors do you have in Tuvalu and how many nurses do you have in Tuvalu? Here, uh, roughly, uh, our own uh, local doctor, about uh, uh, 10, our general uh, Practitioners, our GPs, and our, our nurses, about 20, or slightly more than 20. The outer islands is there. We place them, uh, uh, nurses on most of uh, our outer islands, and a few doctors. We have uh, our specialist doctors from uh, from outside. No? Are doctors and nurses fatigued? Oh, yes, yes, they are. Especially um, on the first week of the break, yeah, we can. Um, I can see the, the situation with our key uh, professional was, you know, they are actually burned out, they are overwhelmed with the work that they were doing, so we had to close one clinic. But uh, uh, last week, the second week of the outbreak, some of them have recovered. And, uh, now, strategizing our silence, uh, is we are great, uh, you know, we've uh, received. Uh, these technical teams. What is your message to residents while this outbreak continues to grow? We continue um, to educate that uh, people uh, take their own uh, individual uh, responsibilities to uh, uh, practice uh, their own uh, protection measures, uh, not just to protect themselves, but to uh, protect uh, the other people, the, the commun our communities. So uh, at the moment, uh, we are strongly um, asking people to uh, take uh, own precautionary and uh, be responsible citizens. It's not it's not just the duty and responsibility of uh, the issue of health, but uh, it's everybody's uh, should be everybody's uh, duty and responsibility to work together and uh, protect our communities.
Papua New Guinea diplomats have long had to face money issues, sometimes having to meet costs out of their own pockets. The PNG government often has issues with departments not having the money they need or have been budgeted for. Most recently, a number of government departments found their doors locked because the rent had not been paid. But the issues facing the small group of diplomats experienced away from home are unique and have not improved over the years, as our PNG correspondent Scott Wiede told Don Wiseman. That is the problem currently faced by many foreign missions. And, you know, Papua New Guineans have watched this situation deteriorate. And, you know, while there have been discussions and public statements about getting things in order, every year, when a, every five years when a new government comes in, we see these same problems. Now, the problems aren't very, they affect the big things, but they're very basic. You know, things like getting salaries on time, having money to pay salaries, both for Papua New Guinean uh, diplomats and their staff, as well as the local staff that they employ. Many of the foreign missions aren't big. They average between four, five, six people. Some have more than that. But these are the problems that they've had. Uh, I've, I've spoken to one or two of them, and one of the things they said was, we sometimes have to sacrifice our salaries so that we can pay the local staff, so that it, it doesn't become an international embarrassment for, for Papua New Guinea. We've had people like Paul Barker from the research organization IMA talking about diplomats maintaining websites, using their own money, paying for transport using their own money and and it's become really, really difficult for them. There have been successive ministers that talked about a reduction of foreign missions and then a, a reorganization of foreign missions and that seems to be the ongoing rhetoric without any, any real work being done. In most countries, I think working for the Foreign Office or working for Foreign Affairs is considered one of the plums in the, the government setups. Uh, they're well-funded as a rule. So what's going on with PNG? We know there are generally financial issues, but money is allocated, but it doesn't arrive. What's happening? It's a collection of issues, and one of them is, of course, finances, getting the money from point A to point B. The other one is the bureaucracy that foreign services have to deal with. You know, the requests go through. Some of them have said, when we send in requests, we're not getting the responses back on time, and it drags on for months. For example, the Singapore office that was led by uh, former police commissioner Anthony Wagambi, he had to deal with uh, the death of his deputy uh, and getting the money to repatriate the body of his deputy back to Papua New Guinea cost a huge amount of money. He didn't have the money back then. And when the money came, that bill was settled and he didn't have anything left for that. And it's an open secret. Everybody knows about it. Uh, It's been uh, out there for some time that uh, foreign missions struggle like that on every front. PNG has very few foreign missions. It has chopped and changed a wee bit and closed some down at times, hasn't it? So is it possible they may end up closing down more? Over the years, you know, the foreign missions have expanded and then they've shrunk. They've kind of kept the minimum and that appears to change whenever there's a new government. You know, priorities change, new assignments are given, new people are appointed uh, and that keeps happening. It, it, it fluctuates, you know, the numbers fluctuate. It goes up and comes down. What sort of understanding is there within government itself about all of these issues? At the pinnacle of government, there's uh, I guess enough understanding to know that it's a function of government that represents the country overseas and needs to be staffed and adequately funded. That that understanding is there. Whether the, the bureaucracy responds to that understanding is a whole different matter. You know, in country, we're having problems with the missing facilities for the Papua New Guinea Defence Force. They haven't paid their bills to the catering 
companies. That's dragged on for about a month now. And it's money coming from Treasury to the Defense Department to the company providing the catering. Now, if that's happening within the government department in Papua New Guinea, imagine what's happening overseas where you deal with uh, a large amount of foreign currency. There have been diplomats complaining or or retired diplomats complaining, but what sign is there that anything has been going to be done about this? At, at the moment, the new minister says that, uh, or he said it last year, he, he has reiterated it again, and said it last year that, uh, you know, the people will be changed and uh, young blood put into the system. So that appears to be the direction that the government has taken. But when there's a ministerial statement, there has to be the money to back it up. That's the biggest problem. The money's not getting to the foreign missions. After being the first Pacific Island team to reach the final in the Rugby League World Cup's tournament history, Samoa were no match for Australia, who came away with another World Cup crown going down 30-10. to 10. However, Samoa's defeat didn't dampen the mood of its supporters, who were still in high spirits. Susana Suisuiki has more. The Samoan community at the Tor Samoa Fan Zone in South Auckland's Otara sang songs while waving their flags long after the game had finished. As the Fan Zone's MC bid farewell, the crowd screamed out to play one more song. Tor Samoa have not only captured passionate fans from Mangare and Otara, their mighty efforts have had a ripple effect on the Samoan diaspora all over the globe. Otara resident and proud Samoan Siu Ilalia says he didn't believe Tor Samoa could even make the semi-finals, let alone the grand finals. He says regardless of the result, he still has something to smile about. I never believed that Samoa go to the, the win the semi-final. But, but the first time, eh? First time. I'm so happy. Community leader Jeromeka says watching the boys in blue displaying their pride and their cultural identity during the World Cup has been moving. I think we've won. We've won the hearts and minds of the world, and I think we've won the hearts and minds of our people. But even like our next generation, like we're really, really going to be inspired to play for Samoa. So, yeah, now I'm feeling really happy. It's just awesome. Tosa Mosaposa Lei Marine Vaiotua Lemoso says the team brought back solidarity in their homeland after a period of political turmoil. Definitely seen a lot of unity as well. Yeah, yeah, all over the world, not just here, but in Samoa as well, especially with the political issues going on. Yeah, we have Samoa, like the HRPP and the FAST now getting together just to celebrate. You know, celebrate the boys, eh? Put our, put our differences aside. After leaving the fan zone, the atmosphere was still joyful as supporters took to the roads, blasting loud Samoan music and sirens. The next Rugby League World Cup will be held in 2025 and Tor Samoa supporters believe wholeheartedly that their team will make history again. That's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Thank you, Tomas, and give me a follow next time on.